Today, we are continuing our study on how to interpret the Bible. By the way, guys, we only have a few more lessons uh, on this, and then we will take our little break for July, not from services, but from theological equipping. And, uh, and then we're going to come back in the fall, and we're going to be doing the doctrine of God. God, his attributes, the fact that he's a trinity. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about miracles. Should we see more of those? What is a miracle? We're going to talk about providence. How can God be sovereign, yet there be evil in the world and things like that? And so it should be a lot of fun uh, as we start preparing for that and thinking about that for next semester. We've got a few more here on how to study the Bible. And uh, today we're going to be talking about something called logical fallacies. Now, don't worry. I know as you're looking at your sheet, you're thinking, oh my gosh, there are like 19 terms here I now have to memorize and all. You don't have to memorize any of that, okay? That is just for your reference. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about mistakes that we make in reasoning when we interpret the Bible, okay? So Jeff did a lesson on what were called exegetical fallacies. Those are mistakes we make in interpreting the Bible. For example, he used uh, uh, an example that I love uh, where he says that Paul says that uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and he uses the Greek word dunamis, right? And so then to say, well, that's the word we get, uh, we get our English word dynamite from dunamis. So Paul means it's the dynamite power of God to salvation. Paul doesn't know what dynamite is. That doesn't come around to like the 1800s. That's an exegetical fallacy, an interpretational mistake. Well, today we're talking about a different kind of fallacy, a different kind of mistake. And that mistake is mistakes in reasoning. Right? Mistakes in reasoning. Okay? So a logical fallacy. We do these all the time. And by the way, as I make fun of things in here today, these are all mistakes that I've made. Okay? So this is not me throwing stones. This is me maybe throwing stones, but also throwing them at myself or something like that. And so we make mistakes in reasoning all the time. And so we're going to go through some of these. And I'm going to do two things as we go through them. I'm going to give you some general examples of where we make these mistakes in our thinking just in life. I'll mention things from society, mention some things from politics, mention some things from advertising, uh, and then I'll give you some theological or biblical examples of where we can sometimes accidentally make these mistakes, okay? So here's what we're going over today. Let me give you a definition of a logical fallacy. It's an error in reasoning that renders an argument untrue, invalid, or unsound, okay? An error in reasoning that that renders an argument untrue, invalid, or unsound. So Here's all we're doing today. So you see a bunch of words. It looks really scary. There are literally hundreds of logical fallacies. I've just picked 19 or so. Why 19? Just arbitrarily, just so we can get an example of these things. But basically, here's what I'm trying to say today. Anytime somebody makes a statement and then they give a reason why you should believe that statement, the reasoning has to actually support that statement. Does that make sense? That's all we're learning today. Every logical fallacy breaks down when it tries to do that. So if I say, let's say I'm interviewing with some sort of uh, potential employer, and they say, why should I hire you? And I say, because we landed on the moon as Americans. That has no relevance to why they should hire me at all, okay? My reasoning for why they should hire me does not match the question that they're asking, okay? Now, that's a very obvious one. But we do ones like this all the time that are not so obvious, and they're these little mistakes in thinking, okay? And so we're going to go over some of those today. Uh, Some of the examples that I'm using are a little bit controversial. That's not just to be, that's just not shock and awe or something. The reason I'm doing that is so it will stick with us, all right? Sometimes the more extreme examples, uh, there's a method to the madness. They have a tendency to stick with us a little bit better. So if I'm using kind of extreme examples, it will help you remember some of these things. It's not me just trying to to go for for shock value or something like that. Okay, everybody kind of cool with what we're doing? I mean, I hope so. This is all I have planned. So I hope everybody's good with this. Okay, let's go through some of these logical mistakes. So all we're doing is we're looking at reasoning 
that doesn't fit with why somebody should believe a statement. Okay, that's all we're doing. So you don't have to memorize these, you don't have to memorize these terms. I don't care about any of that. The only thing I want you to do is when somebody makes a claim and then gives you a reason for it, I want you to ask yourself, did that reason match the claim that they're making? That's all I want you to do. It helps us in our critical thinking. Everybody good? Okay, let's start with the first one. Equivocation. Equivocation, okay? This is simply where you use one word in two different senses. If you are married, this is why you fight with your spouse, okay? This is why you fight with your spouse. When I'm fighting with Katie, she is using a word one way and meaning one thing, and I'm using a word another way and meaning a completely different thing, and because of our equivocation, we are fighting, okay? That happens all the time. Hey, I, I didn't feel cared for when you did this. Wait, what do you mean cared for? I provided this, 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 and this. That's not what she's saying. She's saying I didn't emotionally feel cared for, or something like that. And we get into a big fight, and it's super frustrating. And then I get up there, and I say, well, babe, listen, we need to know about logical fallacies. And then it just goes even worse, right? That's equivocation, okay? I'll give, give you an example uh, just that's in our culture right now. There are times where people will call up to the church or send us an email, and they will ask, can I attend my son's gay wedding? Now, the reason that that's a tricky question for some is because there is no such thing as a gay wedding. In the, in, the, in the sentence, can I attend my son's gay wedding, the word wedding is being used equivocally. It's being used differently than it typically occurs, okay? So if you say, no, you shouldn't attend your son's gay wedding, it sounds like you're being really mean. It sounds like you're saying, don't go to your kid's wedding. Well, that's only because there's an equivocation. There is no wedding going on. A wedding, by definition, is between a man and a woman, all right? And so what it feels like is, well, now you feel like you're denying your son or not going to his wedding or not supporting him, but there's an equivocation going on because there is no wedding. We're using the term wedding in one sense to mean a ceremony and in the way the Bible would use it to mean a union between a man and a woman, all right? So this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. I'll give you some biblical examples. When people say, don't judge me, what do they mean by judging? Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong, right? That's what people mean by the word judge. Whereas what Jesus is forbidding is a hypocritical type of judging where you have a log in your eye and they just have a speck in theirs, right? So the word judge is being equivocated, right? There's a equivocation going on. Judge in one means don't tell me that I'm doing, what I'm doing is wrong. Judging in the other sense is don't hypocritically judge. Don't have a judgmental spirit. And so we use these words and make mistakes logically because we equivocate. We take one word and we give it two different meanings. Or when somebody says that you shouldn't do church discipline because it's unloving. What do they mean by unloving? They mean it will make the person feel bad. Whereas when we're defining loving, we're defining it the way the Bible defines it, which is sometimes giving somebody a little hurt now to keep them from a lot of hurt later, okay? So we do this all the time. The most common logical mistake in fallacy, or uh, logical mistake and logical fallacy in any topic is always equivocation. It's always equivocated. This is the one that's 90% probably of logical mistakes is using one word in two different senses. Think about when people debate each other online. Think about in politics what they mean by the words like freedom, and they mean by the words like rights, and they mean like you just see it all over the place, okay? See it all over the place. If you don't understand this idea, this is where people get confused with when the apostle Paul says you're saved by faith alone, and James says you're not saved by faith alone. There's an equivocation going on. They're using the word faith in two different senses. Paul is using the word by faith to talk about you're not saved by Mosaic law keeping, but rather by faith in Christ. When James says that you're not saved by faith alone, he's meaning something different by the word faith. He's meaning you're not saved by mere cognitive mental assent that doesn't evidence the Spirit's regeneration in your life, that doesn't produce any life change. So when, James, when Paul says you're saved by faith alone, yes and amen, 
When James says you're not saved by faith alone, yes and amen, because they mean different things. Paul is saying you're not saved by mosaic works, you're saved by trusting Christ. James is saying that if you have real faith, it better not just be the kind of faith that the demons have that merely have mental assent, but it better be faith with legs on it. It better be faith with legs on it, okay? That's equivocation. We've got a bunch of these, so I'm gonna go fast, but it's gonna be a lot of fun. Okay, number two, false dichotomy. False dichotomy. When you're told to choose between two options, when really there are more choices. Okay, so if you walk into Baskin Robbins, how many flavors does Baskin Robbins advertise that they have? Gabe. 31, nailed it, all right? 31 flavors. So if you walk in and they say, hey, would you like uh, chocolate or vanilla ice cream? I would say, well, why, why have you robbed me of the 29 other flavors, right? There's more options there. Let me give you one in advertising, you ready? There are some things that money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Well, what about Visa? And what about American Express? And what about cash? I can buy so many other things, not just things that money can't buy, like going to my daughter's wedding and then MasterCard. There's so many options, right? But what they're hoping to do is to make you think there are things money can't buy, but if I need to buy something, I should probably use MasterCard, okay? Right? It's kind of this false dichotomy. Now, they're not saying there are no other options. I'm just trying to give you some examples. But that's called a false dichotomy, where you're given two options when really there's more. Okay, so biblically and theologically, we can see this. Uh, People might come up to you and they might say, are you a young earth or an old earth creationist? And they're only giving you two options. They're not giving you a third option of maybe that's not why Genesis is written and the Bible doesn't actually tell us how old the earth is. That's my view. But they're giving you two options and making you just choose between one of these. Or people will say things like this, is God sovereign or do our decisions really matter? Yes, to both. Right? That's a false dichotomy. It's saying you must choose one of these two when really there are more options. Now, I want to give you a controversial one, but this is a very true. I've heard Christians, multiple Christians say this, and so I want to kind of nip this in the bud, but it's a false dichotomy. I've heard them say, if we as Christians want to outlaw abortion, then we need to be willing to adopt all those babies. If we are not willing to adopt them, then we can't make abortion illegal. Okay? I've heard people use that. Now, let me just be clear. There's a lot of great other third options, like not aborting the babies, right? We don't want to say, that. that's the same argument that they made with uh, slavery, to say we can't free the slaves because where will they get jobs? No, you free the slaves now because what you're doing is evil, we'll worry about that later. You stop aborting babies now, we'll worry about the other stuff later. There's a great third option, which is stop aborting babies, and yes, Christians should be wanting to adopt, okay? But what they'll do is they'll give you one of two options, keep abortion legal or you have to adopt all the babies. No, no. That's a false dichotomy, all right? That's a false dichotomy. Number three, appeal to emotion, all right? An appeal to emotion. This is a big one. I like to think that I'm logical. I think we as humans like to think that we are logical. We are primarily emotional kind of beings. Most of our reasoning really is emotional. We like to think that we're logical. We're not as logical as we think we are, myself included. Uh, But this is an appeal to emotion. This is when you appeal to someone's emotions instead of making a logical argument, okay? There's a fancy Latin term for this. It's called an ad misericordium. You hear the word misery in there. But this is where, like, you're watching TV, and then Sarah McLaughlin comes on. I will remember. And they show you all the dogs that have been, like, beaten and this kind of stuff in the dog pound. And now all of a sudden you should give a ton of money and go adopt a bunch of dogs because you saw some dogs beat up. Now, whether or not you want to adopt dogs, that's a good thing to talk about. Okay? But you need to have reasons for why you adopt them, not just this overwhelming sense of emotion. You're like, but there was singing, and the dog was in a really small cage. 
Oh, that's not a reason, right? So we have to be careful because a lot of times, and you'll hear this a lot with political rhetoric, people are just trying to inflame your emotions instead of making a logical case, instead of making a logical case, okay? So we have to be careful for an appeal to emotion. I'll give you uh, uh, one of these as an example. Uh, I was talking to a family one time, and they did not have biblical grounds for divorce, and the husband and wife still wanted to get divorced, though they did not have biblical grounds, and the case that they made was, you just don't know how bad it is, or else you would allow for divorce. And what's difficult there is we want to sympathize. I'm not trying to downplay emotion. We need to be sensitive. We need to emotionally connect with people. But what they were doing is they were saying, logic aside, the Bible aside, here's some emotion, therefore you should agree with me. Okay? Or you'll hear this sometimes, and again, I don't want to make light of this. I'm giving you these examples because these are things you've actually heard of. Am I, am I right? Are these not things that we've heard? Uh, when somebody says, for example, that, uh, and I don't want to make light of this, I know this is uh, several people even in here uh, have had to struggle with this in the past, but when someone says drinking must be sinful because my mom was an alcoholic, my uncle was an alcoholic, and I saw how bad it was, again, alcoholism is bad, okay? Drunkenness is bad, but that can't be a reasoning for why you think something is sin. Something is sin or not sin based on the Bible, not based upon your experience, okay? Okay. <clears throat> See, I told you some of these would be juicy. Let's everybody take a breath. I typically have you do that in the middle of the class. Let's just do that right here at the beginning, okay? All right, let's, let's do some more. Are you, guys, are you guys seeing the pattern here that you don't have to memorize all these? What you're seeing is somebody makes a claim and then supports it with a reason that's not related to that claim. That's all we're doing. We do this all the time when it comes to interpreting the Bible. That's why I'm giving you theological examples as well. Let's do another one. Ad hominem, this is again a fancy Latin term, which means to the man, ad hominem. This is where you attack somebody's character instead of dealing with their argument. This is where you attack somebody's character instead of dealing with their argument, okay? Attacking the person or the character instead of dealing with their argument, that's an ad hominem. This one is very, very popular. I'll give you a general example, then I'll give you some theological examples. A general example is this mayor, I don't know, this whoever, political leader, this mayor has terrible moral character, therefore his policies or her policies won't be good for the economy. Whether or not their policies are good for the economy is not directly related to whether or not they have good character. It might be, because sometimes people with bad character have bad policies, all right, but not necessarily. You'll see this in theology, so people will say that Martin Luther uh, was somewhat anti-Semitic, therefore we shouldn't listen to Martin Luther. No, Martin Luther can be right on 99% of the things except when he talks about the Jews and we should just then listen to those other 99 and not that 1%. Or they'll say John Calvin had a guy or allowed a guy to be burned at the stake, a guy named Michael Servetus, therefore we shouldn't listen to him. What that is, is an ad hominem. It's attacking the person instead of the argument. I gave this as an example in a sermon that I did here recently where I said I was trying to explain to a guy that somebody could be evil and still make a true claim. And I said, even Hitler believed two plus two was four. And the guy, through illogical reasoning, said, you like Hitler? And I was like, no, no. No, 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 you, you've, uh, you've committed a logical fallacy somewhere. That wasn't my point, right? My point was we have to fight arguments, not just, well, I don't like this girl or this guy or whatever it is, okay? So we have to be careful that we're not just attacking the person. We have to attack the argument. So if I was debating with some sort of atheist, I can't just say this guy is super evil and et cetera. I have to deal with his arguments. Can I prove the existence of God? Can I defeat his arguments, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Next, appeal to the wrong authority. This is the fundamental logical fallacy, I think maybe of our culture, where people appeal to those who are not an authority on the proposed topic. 
okay? The fancy theological term, if you want it, it's called an advericundium. Appealing to someone or something that is not an authority on the proposed topic. Let me give you an example. A Hanes commercial comes up. And who's advertising Hanes? Michael Jordan. And you think to yourself, well, I need to buy Hanes because Michael Jordan is a great basketball player, right? That's an appeal to an errant authority. What makes Michael Jordan able to speak on clothing? Nothing, nothing. You just say, I really like him. I want to be like Mike. He can dunk a basketball from the free throw line, so maybe if I wear Hanes, I can too, right? That's what we do. And so what it is, it's an appeal to an errant authority, right? Or there was another one I saw uh, recently, uh, who was it? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Y'all know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is? He's kind of an astrophysicist who's big in popular culture. He's not as well respected amongst other scientists. He's kind of... uh, He's kind of to science sometimes what Joel Osteen is to Christianity, kind of just this uh, weird figurehead. And he was, on, he was on TV talking about market economics. And I thought to myself, you're an astrophysicist. You have no training in this. But why are they appealing to him? Because he's a popular figure. Because he's a popular figure, okay? You have to be careful of pe- people appealing to the wrong authority. There are times to appeal to authorities. Not all appeals to authorities are bad. If we're, making a, if we're having a discussion about theology to appeal to the Bible is a good authority. That makes sense in that category. Or if you're talking about medicine, it makes sense to appeal to the opinion of a doctor. It doesn't make sense to appeal to the opinion if you're dealing with medicine of a journalist or something like this, okay? So we have to be careful of appealing to the wrong authority. I'll give you a theological example. I'm going to give you a sentence that I sometimes hear. I know the Bible says that you should physically discipline your children, but some secular psychologist with no training in theology says that discipline will hurt their self-esteem. That's an appeal to the wrong authority. Our authority on a theological topic would be the Bible, not pop psychology or something like this. So we just have to be careful. When we, when we trust experts, we need to make sure they're actually experts in that field, okay? One of the things that I think is the most frustrating is we live in a culture where everyone assumes they're an expert in every topic, right? Am I, am I wrong or is that what people think? That's what people think. I'm totally correct. Thank you. That's what I want to hear. I mean, so even if you take, for example, the, uh, the thing that happened in London uh, yesterday, before any evidence is out, before we know any facts, people are already online and already on the news pushing a political agenda, right or left, before they have any facts, though they may not have any training in political science, they may not have any training in understanding Islam, they might not have any training in law enforcement tactics, any of that stuff. They're just, here's what happened. I already hold a view on this position. Let me push it. We are not experts on everything. We are not experts on everything, okay? I don't think I'm an expert on anything, much less everything, right? And so we just need to keep that in mind. There's a sense in which if you assume that you're an expert in everything, it's just a mark of pride. It's a mark of pride because there's not a willingness to learn. Next, a category mistake. A category mistake. This is another kind of reasoning that we uh, can make fallaciously. Category mistake, the error of assigning to something, a quality or action that can properly be assigned to things only of another category. Let me read that again. The error of assigning to something a quality or action that can properly be assigned to things only of another category. Kids do this all the time. Daddy, what color is time? Oh my gosh, that's the deepest question I've ever heard, right? What's going on when your kid says, Daddy, what color is time? By the way, the answer to that is if they're a boy, you just say blue, and if they're a girl, you just say pink. But uh, what they're doing is there's a category mistake. Time doesn't have a color, but they will ask that kind of stuff all the time, mixing up little things, and, uh, you know, they'll just say things like, why uh, are? That's either a really deep philosophical question, and you're way smarter than me, or there's a category mistake going on, right? And so category mistakes, though, are just where we apply one thing 
to a category where it doesn't fit, okay? Let me give you an example theologically. Let's talk about the Bible where we can misapply this. I'll give you an example of this. When somebody asks, who made God? So I've been talking before to people, and we're talking about how God makes everyone, and then they say, but who made God? That's a category mistake. Nobody made God because God's always existed. To say who made God assumes that he is a creature and he must be made. Well, he's not. He is creator. He is not creature, and he's always existed. So to say who made God is just a little category mistake. God is in a different category than everything else we talk about because everything else we talk about is made, and God is not. All right? And God is not. Or here's another one. Um, when the Bible says that God changed his mind, sometimes we can make a category mistake if we read uh, if we don't understand that when the Bible talks about God doing activities like that, there are some times that you can't literally apply that to God or it makes no sense. So when the Bible talks about God changing his mind, whatever it means, it can't mean that he changes his mind like we do, where it's reactive, where we thought we had a good idea and some new information came to us, and so now we changed our idea. That can't be how God changes his mind because he knows and ordains everything, right? So we have to take into account, and this happens a lot in the Bible, what's called anthropomorphism. There are times where we use human language. That's what anthropos means. It means man in Greek. There are times where we use human language to talk about God because we don't know how else to talk about him. He's a being that's completely unlike us. He is everywhere with all his being at once, and he is infinite, and he is Trinitarian. And so when the Bible says God's mighty right arm, you don't need to think, which is what I think, which is God must be right-handed, therefore Jeff is wrong because he's left-handed. That's just a symbol to say God is strong. God is strong. He doesn't literally have sinews and blood vessels and things like that. He doesn't have an arm. He's spirit, right? And so we have a tendency sometimes to misapply categories to God uh, and accidentally make these category mistakes. Okay, here's another one. Misapplying a situation. Misapplying a situation, okay? This is where you try to use an analogy in one area of life in a place where it does not fit, okay? In a place where it does not fit. Let me say this another way. Is there such thing as a perfect analogy? No, why not? Because the only thing exactly like that thing is that thing. Well said, all right? There's no such thing as a perfect analogy because if it was perfect, it would be that thing, right? And so when we do analogies, we have to figure out what part of this analogy is meant to be drawn over versus what parts are not. And so we can end up doing this all the time accidentally, misapplying a situation. I'll give you a general example, then I'll give you some theological examples. Uh, I've heard people say, how can someone oppose abortion but not be opposed to the death penalty? And there's a confusion of the situation there. One is the unjust taking of life by an individual. The other is the just taking of life by the state. Those are completely different situations, okay? Those are completely different situations. Uh, or in theology, Proverbs 21.9 says this, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So then I've heard people say, therefore I can divorce my wife because she's quarrelsome. That's not the point of that verse. That verse is saying, it's better to get away than to be with this kind of wife. That's not then permission that you can actually leave your wife. That's advice that you should consider before marrying her, all right, before marrying her. And so we can sometimes, though, accidentally misapply that situation, and people have used that as grounds for divorce. Well, the Bible says it's better. Well, when it says it's better, it means it would be easier to. It doesn't mean it's now allowed for you to get away, okay, allowed for you to get away. Uh, I've heard people say that Deborah, so in the Old Testament, Deborah was a judge, and Phoebe is called a deacon, therefore women uh, should be elders in local churches. That's, again, misapplying a situation. It's taking two categories that are not eldership and then trying to make them eldership. Uh, I've heard people say Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek so Christians can't be soldiers. Again, that misapplies the situation. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about turning the other cheek? He's talking about not retaliating. If somebody strikes you on the one cheek, 
you turn the other one as well. You don't retaliate. Someone curses at you. You don't curse back. You don't do that kind of stuff. That's not meant to address whether or not the government who bears the sword should go over and stop some sort of violent regime or something like that. They're just different categories. That's not saying I'm for or against. I'm just saying you can't use Jesus saying don't retaliate to then answer a question of what should the government do in this case or something like that. Okay? But that's misapplying a situation. We can do that all the time. Okay. Everybody good so far? Everybody, uh, everybody still happy? Have I made anyone frustrated yet? If so, don't tell me. Just push it down deep, push it down deep, and let it just well up one day till you just explode. All right, I'm kidding. Uh, okay, false cause. Let's talk about a false cause, okay? There's a very fancy theological term for this, post hoc ergo propter hoc, which means after this, therefore, because of this. But here's what the definition is. Presuming that a real or perceived relationship between things means that one is the cause of the other. Let me read that one again. Presuming that a real or perceived relationship between things means that one is the cause of the other. Let me give you an example from normal life, and then we'll, uh, we'll give you some theological examples. Listen to this kind of reasoning. Parents who let their kids listen to classical music will have smarter kids because the kids listen to classical music, okay? Maybe, maybe. Or maybe because they have the kind of parents that already listen to classical music and really care about their kids growing in knowledge and have smart parents, maybe that's why the kids become smart. Are, are the parents good parents and therefore they play classical music and their kid gets smarter or does the kid get smarter because there's classical music? What we can do is we can end up inverting and mixing around the cause. You'll hear this idea if somebody says, uh, this kid shot up this school because he listened to rock music. Well, there's a lot of kids that listen to rock music that don't shoot up schools, right? Was he listening to rock and that's what made him shoot up the school? Or was he already angry in these kind of things and therefore he liked a certain type of music and wanted to shoot up a school? And so don't confuse that just because two things happen around the same time, that doesn't mean one causes the other. That doesn't mean one causes the other. Everybody with me on this? There was, a, there was actually a story about this in, uh, uh, in a popular uh, kind of social work that came out a few years ago. And it was a story of a mom who named her daughter Temptress. That was her daughter's name. By the way, if you're having a kid, I highly don't recommend you name your daughter Temptress, okay? And she ended up living a terrible lifestyle. And the question was, did she do that because she had that name, or did she have the kind of mother that would give her that name and therefore not set her up for success, right? And so you have to ask, which one is the cause sometimes? Which one is the effect? Sometimes we have a tendency that just because two things are related to each other in time, we therefore think that one causes the other. One causes the other. Uh, I'll give you an example theologically. I think this is maybe one of the biggest mistakes of the idea of believing in baptismal regeneration. So if you grew up in a tradition, whether it was Church of Christ or Roman Catholic or something like this, even Lutheran that teaches baptismal regeneration, there's a confusion of just because these things happen around the same time, therefore one must cause the other. Your regeneration is given to you by the Holy Spirit upon hearing in faith, and what happens around that same time is you go in obedience to Jesus and you be baptized. That's how the Bible can sometimes talk about baptism saving you. It's not that getting dunked in water saves you. It's your faith in Christ, which you had before that, that led to you getting baptized. But what some people will do is they'll confuse those. They'll say, because baptism always happens around the same time as conversion, baptism must be what causes conversion. No. Baptism doesn't cause regeneration. You're saved, therefore you get baptized. You don't get baptized, therefore you're saved. But a lot of times people get those confused because in the New Testament, conversion and baptism happen very closely in time, and therefore they assume that one causes the other. And that's not the case. That's, a, that's the false uh, cause post hoc fallacy. Okay, what else? 
Another page and a half to go. Are you bored yet? Huh? You got some fancy terms. You can impress your friends. Next time you're sitting there and they say one of these things, you say, well, you know what? That's an advericundium argument. You can't use that because da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All right? So uh, feel free to become a jerk using these. I'm kidding. Okay. Slippery slope. Slippery slope can be a logical fallacy. Carl, is uh, Taylor not here? Taylor Brower loves logical fallacies, and this was the lesson he was most waiting for, and he's not here. Okay, I was just checking. Okay, slippery slope. Assuming that if one thing is allowed, it will necessarily lead to a worse thing. Okay? We can do this accidentally again all the time. Every one of these that I've mentioned, I've committed. Every single one of them. So if you say, man, I feel kind of bad because Zach mentioned these, and there are times I've thought like that. Me too. That's why we're doing this. All right? Me too. Okay. Let me give you a general example. If you give a mouse a cookie... Then what? He'll want a glass of milk. And if he wants a glass of milk, who knows what comes after that? Me neither, but something. (laughs) It keeps going, all right? I don't remember the story. But you get the point. The point is if you give him a little, he'll take too much. So you shouldn't give him the cookie. And we can do that kind of reasoning all the time. We do that in sociology. We do it in politics. We can do it in churches. I'll give you some theological examples. If you tell someone about grace, then they will live wickedly. There's some people that think that. If people really understand and trust grace, then they'll live wickedly. If you can live wickedly, you don't understand grace. If I'm freed from prison, I don't say, yes, now I can go get back in prison as fast as possible. I'm humbled by the grace of that, and I try to stay out of prison, right? And so it's not true that if you give somebody grace, they'll live wickedly. In fact, if you don't give somebody grace, they'll live wickedly. Grace is the solution, by the way. This is just a little aside. Grace is the solution both to legalism and licentiousness. So if somebody's legalistic, what they need is grace. They need to know that they don't earn favor before God, it's given to them. If somebody lives wickedly, what you don't do is you don't pull the reins on grace and give them more law. Rather, you let them know that they don't really understand and see grace because if you understand the grace that God gives you, it makes him look glorious and makes your sin look disgusting. But that is a slippery slope argument. If you tell someone about grace, they'll live wickedly. Or I've heard this one a lot. If you tell someone about predestination, they won't evangelize. Despite the fact that all the fastest growing churches in America are reformed or Calvinistic, despite the fact that the first great awakening was all done by reformed guys, with the exception of one, that if uh, we tell people about predestination, they won't evangelize. No, actually, they will evangelize because it means they might be successful because their evangelism is not up to them and their ability to persuade, but rather the fact that God is going to go before them and open the hearts of the people they're talking to. Okay, so it's a slippery slope kind of argument. If we allow one thing, we gotta be careful because it could lead to something worse. Sometimes that's true. Other times, though, that's not true. So we just have to be careful with that kind of thinking. Okay, we have to be careful with that kind of thinking. Here's another one. Appeal to experience. Appeal to experience. Sometimes people will use their personal experiences to try to get out of having to deal with the truth of what you say. Okay, let me give you an example. Here's the definition of an appeal to experience. Where one appeals to their personal experiences, especially social or class-related issues, to avoid having to make a logical defense of their position. Okay? So we just need to realize God's truth stands above everybody. God's Bible stands above everybody. God is an equal opportunity hater. Right? He critiques everybody. He critiques right. He critiques left. He critiques single. He critiques married. That's what he does. Okay? So his word is what stands over and above all of us. But sometimes you'll hear people appeal to their experience instead of dealing with the argument, okay? Uh, This can happen where if someone says, you can only talk to me about racial issues, uh, or you can't talk to me about racial issues because you're not my race, or you don't know what it's like to be my race. Uh, It can happen if someone says, only a woman can talk about gender issues with another woman because you're a man and you don't know what that's like. Uh, I've heard people theologically say things like you can't, that someone can't give them marriage advice because they're single. And so uh, Jeff, before he got married, he was in ministry as as a single minister, 
and he would be sitting down with a couple and he's giving them Bible and they're saying things or thinking things like, you're not married, you can't tell me this. You mean like Jesus who told you that and wasn't married or like Paul who told you that and wasn't married, right? It's not an appeal to experience. We have to appeal to truth, not our experience. What people try to do is they try to appeal to their experience so that you don't have an equal claim on truth with them. And you have to fight against that. It's an appeal to experience. I had a lady one time that I was working with, not at a church, and uh, she was living with her boyfriend, and her uh, reason for that was that God didn't know what intimacy was like, and so she had to try it before marriage to make sure he was the right guy to marry. That's an appeal to experience. That's not listening to what the Word says. That's not making a logical argument from the Bible. That's saying, here's something where I'm going to use my experience to distance myself from truth, distance myself from God, distance myself from having to argue on this position with you. Okay? Straw man fallacy. All right? Straw man fallacy. I told you, some of these are juicy. They're not, not for shock value. You see how prevalent this is. You see how prevalent this is in our society. You see how prevalent this is in churches. We do this all the time. We are broken. We are more emotional creatures than we are logical. The straw man fallacy. What is the straw man fallacy? Where one sets up a, quote, straw man or a caricature of another's position so it's easy to knock down. The idea is if I was getting in a fight and I didn't really want to fight you because maybe you'll actually get a few shots in on me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a scarecrow and act like that's you and I'm just going to knock it to the ground. Easy peasy, right? And so a straw man fallacy is where you make light of someone else's position like it's not actually very smart so you can just knock down a caricature. You just set up their position, which is really easy to defeat, and then you just defeat it. And you're like, see how easy that was? People do this all the time, right? People do this all the time. I'll give you an example from... uh, Just a general example, and then I'll give you some theological examples. Here's a great general example. Country music songs are awful because they're just a bunch of people getting cheated on and whose dogs keep getting run over, right? What is that? If somebody didn't like country music, they might say that. I hate country music. Everyone's dog leaves them, and their wife leaves them, and there's something about the troops and a shotgun and then a truck. I hate country music. Well, that's a caricature, right? I'm not saying you should or shouldn't like country music. What I'm saying is that's a caricature. What they're doing is they're setting up ridiculous things and just knocking them down so they can say country music is silly, right? We do this, though, sometimes theologically, and we do this biblically. So a few examples. Uh, We all know that Calvinism is wrong because if God selects who he's going to save, he is unloving and our choices really don't matter. So you'll hear people shoot down Reformed theology and say, well, Reformed theology is dumb because the Bible also says that we choose, we say, yes, we've always agreed that you choose. The question, though, is did God choose you first and that's why you chose? Or did you choose God first and therefore he just reacted? And he just reacted. But what they'll say is they'll set up a, a false straw man. They'll say, if God's really sovereign, like you're saying that he is, like historically the Protestant church has held that he is, then it means that we don't really make decisions. No, that's a straw man. We do really make decisions. If God is as sovereign as you say is, then it means that he is unloving. No, no, no. The Bible's very clear that he's loving. And one of the ways that he's loving is by his sovereignty. It's by his sovereignty. What they'll do is they'll set up a straw man just so they can knock it down and act like it's a ridiculous position. Or we can do the same thing sometimes where we say something like this. I saw some people going crazy and speaking in tongues on TV and it was really weird. Therefore, the gift of tongues must have ceased. Okay? Now, this is not to to make a case for or against tongues. It's to say that you can't say, just because I've seen the abuse, I now have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Okay? If every time you walked into a church, someone hit you with a Bible. Okay, I don't know what church this is, but let's just say that's a church you attend. You walk into a church, someone's hiding behind a corner, and as soon as you come in, they hit you with the Bible. And you're like, oh, what is happening? You come back next week, for some reason, though someone has assaulted you in church, you come back next week and they hit you with the Bible. The solution is not to get rid of the Bible, it's to stop hurting people with it, right? 
It's the same way with some of these charismatic gifts and things like that. And so we have a tendency, though, sometimes to see excesses and build up a straw man and just knock that down as if that's the case. That's not our case. Our case is where we have to wrestle through what the gifts are, if they're around today, how to use them, if so, by wrestling with the biblical text, not by appealing to our experience. That's already a fallacy we've looked at. Not by appealing to the fact that some people use it crazily, and so therefore we shouldn't use it at all. We have to make a biblical case. Okay? We don't want to appeal to experience. Okay, a few more. How are we doing on time? Okay, appeal to popular opinion. Appeal to popular opinion. This is a big one. If you ever get a chance to talk to Tim, Tim's got a background in sociology, and so he is always up to date on what's going on sociologically and sociological trends and why people are doing these kind of things. And what he was talking about the other day was the fact that we live in an age where all of our decisions we want validated by as many people as possible. This is why there's a like button on Twitter and these kind of things. We want our positions out there. We want affirmation because we want to think of it based upon popular culture. And so, uh, so the... Uh, Appeal to popular authority, the fancy Latin term is an ad populum, all right, to the populace. To say that because a large group of people believe something, it is therefore correct, okay? To say that because, you'll, you'll hear people say this, and we have to be careful. There are times where I'll say, all of church history has held this, right? Now, that's not the ad populum fallacy, to say all of church history has held this, but it can be. It can be if I'm making the wrong case. By the way, almost all of these logical fallacies I've mentioned can be used correctly, most of the time, though, they're in a situation where they're not, okay, where they're not. So Neil deGrasse Tyson might be right on market economics, but it's not because he's got training in it. He could accidentally be right or something like that. So a lot of these fallacies I've mentioned can actually be used correctly, including this one, but a lot of times it's used incorrectly. I'll give you some examples. Everybody online thinks this particular celebrity is bad, therefore they must be bad, okay? You want to be very careful of saying, well, everybody thinks this, so therefore it must be right, uh, you know, like Nazi Germany, right? Everybody in there is leaning on the side of the population, the majority population in Nazi Germany, and they were not correct, okay? I'll give you some theological examples. Most Christians throughout church history have been Roman Catholic, therefore that is probably the most biblical form of Christianity. That is an ad populum in the wrong way, okay? Sometimes that can be helpful to say all Christians have held this in church history, but it's also biblical and here's why, but that's not what they're doing in that case. They're saying, their view of justification in Roman Catholicism must be correct just because a bunch of people have held it, despite the fact that that's not the way the Bible talks about justification, okay? Or, everyone agrees that doing church discipline is mean and unforgiving, so we shouldn't do it, okay? A lot of churches don't do church discipline, and it's because culturally that's seen as super weird. That's seen as super judgmental equivocation. There it is again, right? The fact that we hold to things like church discipline, the fact that we hold to Reformed theology, the fact that we hold to the roles of men and women like we do at Parkway is going to mean that we're going to stand out from certain areas of culture. That's okay. We as Christians will always stand out a little from culture because we hold certain things that culture's not okay with. But that doesn't mean just because a bunch of people believe it that it's right or wrong. I'll give you another one. 55% of Americans believe gay marriage is good, therefore gay marriage is probably good. Okay, that is, uh, again, an ad populum argument, an appeal to popular opinion. Okay, a few more. I'm going to run through these. Everybody good? Do we need another big breath? Huh? We need some jumping jacks? Anything? Okay, stay with me. Here's one. Confusing probability and possibility. Confusing probability and possibility. Assuming that just because something can be the case, that it is most likely the case. Okay? I had a buddy that was going into Naval Special Warfare, and uh, as he was signing up for the Navy he ended up putting, when he talked to his recruiter, they asked if he had any mental illness in his family. And he said, yes, my grandmother. 
And the recruiter said, don't put that on there or they won't accept you. Go ahead and lie on your application and just put that there's no mental illness in your family. So he did that, following the recruiter's instructions. Gets down to Coronado, is doing all this kind of stuff, training, they're just tired, sleep deprived, has to start filling out another form and accidentally marks down that his, uh, there is mental illness in his family. And there's a discrepancy now on his application and he's kicked out of the Navy for falsifying an application. So what happened there? Well, with this issue, there was this assumption. Well, one, you can't falsify an application. I'm not supporting lying. That's not the point. The assumption though there is because there was mental illness with your grandmother, therefore you must have it as well. Therefore you must have it as well. Okay? Now again, not always a fallacy. You don't want to take somebody who might have mental illness and put them into naval special warfare. Right? But to say that that's always the case, that that must happen, is confusing probability and possibility. Okay? I'll give you this one. Man, I hear this. This happens a lot. If you've ever grown up in churches, you hear this a lot. I've done this as when I was preaching. When a pastor says, this Greek word can mean blank. I never care about that. I never care what it can mean. It can mean a lot of things. I care what it does mean, all right, what it does mean. So I've got a buddy uh, who is Presbyterian, and what he would say is he would say the Greek word baptize, there's a related word to that. So the Greek word is baptizo. That means to, it means to dunk or to, to immerse. That's literally what it means in almost every context in all of Greek literature. But there's a related word to it, babto, which just means like to wash, and what he'll say is there's this related Greek word, bapto, which just means to wash. So therefore now we can do infant non-believing children baptism sprinkling. And I'm like, do you not see the big leap you just made there? The command here is to dunk, to be baptized, and it's for someone who's a believer. And because there is one Greek related word that can sometimes mean wash, that's what you're gonna now take to build your case on why you should do sprinkling with infants. That's ridiculous. Don't, just because it could mean that, I don't care. What is it that it most likely means? What is it that it most likely means? Don't confuse probability and possibility. A lot of things are possible. Not a lot of things are probable. Is it possible that out in the woods right now there are some gremlins and some dwarves running around fighting each other? Is that possible? Is it probable? Don't say yes, Carl. Don't say yes. You Dungeons and Dragons guys, don't say yes. Okay, all right? Don't confuse possibility and probability. Next, loaded question. Loaded question. When answering a question affirms a hidden premise you might not want to affirm. Okay? Let me give you the, the classic example of a loaded question. Have you stopped beating your wife? If you say yes, it means you beat her in the past. If you say no, it means you beat her presently. Okay? The problem with that is the question assumes something. The question assumes that there's beating of your wife going on. And so whether, however you answer, you've now played into the trap of affirming a hidden premise in that question you didn't want to affirm. This happens all the time where somebody asks you a question, but there's these premises built in there that uh, you might not want to agree with. You have to be careful when somebody asks you a question and then says yes or no, because sometimes that's a false dichotomy. Sometimes there's more than just yes or no, okay? Sometimes there is more than just yes or no. Let me give you some examples. You'll hear this one with those that uh, might not hold a Christian worldview. Are you a dumb Christian who believes the Bible or are you a rational person that believes in science? Okay, that is a loaded question. How am I supposed to answer that? How do I say I am a Christian but I also believe in science or something like that? How, how do I say both? That question, by the way, is also a false dichotomy. But what they'll do is you're agreeing with a premise you might not want to agree with. You'll see this a lot when a Christian debates an atheist. 
there's already these presuppositions that are set up that nobody addresses and they just start fighting each other and they never stop to address the presupposition. All right, they never stop to address the presupposition. Okay? Argument from silence. Argument from silence. Using a place where the evidence is lacking as proof for your argument. Okay? Using a place where there is no evidence or the evidence is lacking to then say that your argument is correct. It's an argument from silence. Okay? I'll give you a few examples. General examples when somebody pleads the fifth. When somebody pleads the fifth. That's an argument from silence. Whether you assume that they are guilty or you assume that they are innocent, you can't really assume either. If they just plead the fifth, they just haven't said anything. Okay? A lot of times we assume that they're guilty because they said they plead the Maybe they don't want to say what the real reason is, but not always. Right? Not always. Here's an example theologically. Only church leaders baptize in the New Testament, therefore someone who's not a church leader can't baptize. Okay? That is an argument from silence. The Bible would not say that. In fact, there's a guy named Ananias who seems to be the one that baptizes Paul that's not said to be a church leader. But that is, that's an argument from silence. Or here's another one. Elders or deacons who are married must have only one wife, therefore you cannot have a single deacon or something like that. That would be an argument from silence. Just because it says if they have a wife, they must have one. That doesn't address the question of whether or not they can be single or something like that. Here's another one, another argument from silence. Whole households are said to be baptized in the book of Acts. Therefore, we should assume that these people had infants too young to believe, and this is a clear case for infant baptism. That is an argument from silence. So when I'm talking to my Presbyterian buddies, and they say, well, Zach, there are household baptisms in the book of Acts. Well, that's an argument from silence. Where does it say that they have kids that are too young to believe and that they sprinkle baptize those kids? Nowhere. It's just something you assume. Right? It's just something you assume. So you have to be careful. Just because you can affirm something in one area does not necessarily mean its negation is true. Okay? Does not mean its negation is true. If I say that if it is raining outside, it will be wet, that does not mean that if it's not raining outside, it won't be wet. There could be sprinklers or all kinds of other things. Okay? So we have to be careful that we don't make an argument from silence sometimes where the text is silent. Here's another one. Middle ground. Middle ground, here's what this fallacy is. Stating that the truth of something has to lie in the middle of two extremes. This is very, very popular in our culture to say that the truth on some issue has to lie within the middle of two extremes. Sometimes that's the truth. But is that the truth all the time? No, let me give you an example. Is the truth on the whole pro-life, pro-choice debate somewhere in the middle? No, it's pro-life, right? And so there's this idea that the truth has to be right in the middle of something is not always true. I'll give you another theological example. The truth regarding election is probably somewhere in between the view of Calvin and the view of Arminius. You'll hear people say that all the time. There's Calvinism over here, Arminianism over here. Maybe truth is somewhere in the middle. No, they're diametrically opposed systems. There is no middle. One has to be more right than the other one, okay? So we don't want to assume that just because there's a middle of one position, therefore that's the best. Therefore that's the best. Okay, three more. And then the Jeff Ashley will come up here and give us some good, clear, logical reasoning to the answers that you, uh, of the questions you have. Shifting the burden of proof. Shifting the burden of proof. Saying that the burden of proof lies not with the person making the claim, but with one's opponent to disprove it. Okay? I'll give you an example. If I come up to you, again, I'll use Carl, and I say, Carl, unicorns might exist because you can't prove that they don't. What's the problem with that reasoning? Yes, it, the burden of proof is on me to prove that the unicorn exists in that example because we've never seen any unicorns. Don't give me the example of the deer they found with the little one horn in the middle of its head. That's not a unicorn. Unicorns are magical. That deer was not magical. And so what we'll do is we'll say, what we'll do is we'll say, 
If, if I go up to you and I, ask, and I say something like, hey, unicorns exist, you can't prove that I'm wrong. Well, I've shifted the burden of proof. The burden of proof was on me to prove that they're right because no one's ever seen one. Not on you to prove that they're wrong. And so sometimes in an argument, people will shift the burden of, of uh, proof. And so uh, I'll give you a theological example. Uh, when somebody says, where in the Bible is blank? Okay, so they'll say, you'll hold some position and they'll say, where's that in the Bible? Let me be really clear. Something not being in the Bible is different than it being unbiblical. Okay, cars are not in the Bible. Driving a car is not unbiblical. Does that make sense? Pulpits are not in the Bible. Using a pulpit is not unbiblical. So there's a difference between something just not being in the Bible versus something being unbiblical. And so what we have a tendency to do sometimes is to shift the burden of proof on somebody. So let's say somebody wants to get a new car and I say, where's that in the Bible? What I've done is I've somehow made them feel guilty for something that's not in the Bible, also an argument from silence, so that they don't buy a car despite the fact that I've shifted the burden of proof on them, whereas I've wanted to prove that that's wrong, I have to show them why I think it's wrong for them to buy a car, okay? If that was confusing, because I just said a bunch of words really fast, here's all I'm saying. You have to ask in an argument, whose job, who does the burden of proof lie on? On whom does the burden of proof lie? That's the person that has to make the positive argument, okay? Now, we mention this in church history all the time, that if you want to hold a new position that Christians have never held, the burden of proof is on you. It's not on church history. The burden of proof is on you who's making it. It's on the person making the claim to prove their point, not on the other person to refute it. Okay. Let me give you just another example. Sometimes we have a tendency to do this. Let's say you're talking with an atheist, and he says, prove to me that God exists, and then you turn around and say, prove to me that he doesn't. Well, what you've done is you've shifted the burden of proof. You've shifted the burden of proof, whereas you're the one making the claim God exists, so you have to defend it, make the claim, okay? Two more, two more logical fallacies in biblical interpretation. Special pleading, special pleading, okay? This one has a long definition, so I'm gonna read it, okay? Applying standards, principles, and or rules to other people or circumstances while making oneself or certain circumstances exempt from the same critical criteria without providing adequate justification. Special pleading is often a result of strong emotional beliefs that interfere with reason, okay? This is where you make a claim to say, this is always the case. And then I say, well, what about this case? And you say, well, not that one. That, that, doesn't, really, that doesn't really count, right? So I'll give you an example. Let's say you were talking to somebody who said that they were a psychic and they had psychic powers. They're always doing psychic things, you know, like Miss Cleo. Y'all remember Miss Cleo used to come on TV? And she was like arrested for fraud, which she didn't see coming. Uh, so there's special pleading. So here's what they might say. They might say something like this. Well, I typically have psychic powers, but I couldn't prove them today when somebody asked me. They, they weren't working today. It was a full moon uh, or whatever it is. And what they're doing is they're exempting themselves from their claim, okay? They're saying typically this is true, but the one time you're actually pressing me on it, it's not true, okay? You see this sometimes with the word of faith movement and some of the uh, prosperity gospel people where they just say, God always works. Every time I pray for somebody, they get healed. doesn't matter if it's cancer. I raise people from the dead. I do all these amazing things. And then you say, hey, will you pray for my son? And they pray for the son, and he doesn't get well. And then you have to press and say, why didn't he get well if this always happens? Or as I had heard somebody say in a seminary chapel one time, if Gloria Copeland can heal as many people as she says she can, then she is the most evil person in the world because she does not spend all her days in hospitals healing across America. She's too busy on her private jet. Okay? You'll hear people say this in theology when they'll say, I'm just saying that I think God can do anything he wants. So you'll beat them on an argument, and then they'll, they'll then appeal to the fact that God can do anything for why their position might still be correct. I say, well, this is the case. And they'll say, yeah, but I mean, can't God do anything he wants? And I think two things. I think 
No, God actually can't do things that he said he's not going to do because he's not a liar. And two, that's irrelevant for the discussion that I'm making, for the, or for the uh, argument that I'm making. And then lastly, Jeff, if you want to make your way up, inconsistency. Last logical mistake we make in interpreting the Bible, there's a lot of them. Again, we just went through 19 today. Inconsistency. Holding one position that is a logical contradiction to another position that you hold. Holding one position that is a logical contradiction to another position that you hold. Okay? I'm going to give you a spicy, juicy cultural example, okay, of what inconsistency is. From our culture, this is not mean, this is not meant to be mean or anything like this. I just want you to see how this plays out. In our culture, you have people that support both feminism and transgenderism. Does that make any sense logically? Because the claim of a feminist is that there is essentially no big difference between male and female, that the soul of a man and the soul of a woman are essentially the same. The whole argument behind transgenderism, though, is that the soul of a man and the soul of a woman are fundamentally different, that in fact, you could be born a man and have a woman's soul or something like this. So what's weird is you'll see people online who are both feministic and support transgenderism, and you can't. You have to pick. Are, man, are men and women fundamentally the same, or are they fundamentally different, and therefore you should try to change your genders? You see an inconsistency. You see an inconsistency. Both of those can't be true. You have to pick one or the other if you're going to hold to one of those positions. I'd say that you shouldn't hold to either, but if you're going to hold to one of those positions, you, you can't support both. You can't be both a feminist and support transgenderism. Okay? Or when you hear people say there's no such thing as absolute truth, that's an inconsistency. They're saying, here's a statement that is true. There are no absolute truths other than that sentence I just made that I'm saying is true. It's inconsistent. To be inconsistent is to be wrong. It is to hold a lie. It is to hold a falsehood. You cannot be inconsistent, okay? I'll give you another example. When someone believes that God's word contains all that we're supposed to obey, but they add other rules into the Bible for what really makes for one to be holy, that's inconsistent. If you believe in inerrancy, you cannot take away from God's rules, nor can you add them. Okay, that's inconsistent. Or, I spoke to a guy one time that said uh, that uh, he believed these two things, and he didn't see how he was inconsistent. Or he believed these three things. He believed that children were born sinful, that we're all born in iniquity, as the Bible teaches, we're born broken. And he believed that baptism was necessary for salvation. And so I said, if you hold these two, then you have to hold that all babies are damned. I said, if you want to hold those positions, that we are born in sin, and baptism is necessary for salvation, God cannot save apart from it, then you have to hold that all babies are damned, and he wouldn't hold that position. And what I was showing him was that his position was inconsistent. You can't hold these two things and also hold that babies are saved. So one or both of these two things are wrong, and the position that he was holding that was wrong was that baptism was necessary for salvation. Okay? It is necessary for obedience. There's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian, but God regenerates even before baptism, like in the book of Acts, Acts 10, with Cornelius and his household. The Spirit falls on them. They're speaking in tongues. They already have the Spirit, and they say, why, why should we keep these people from being baptized? But there was an inconsistency there that he couldn't see in that argument.